Yeah, it's great, it's cool. All credit to Matt this morning and uh, Chloe in Sunday Gang as well for doing the youth camp out. We'll not call it sleep out because that would be inaccurate. And, uh, and then standing upright and, and looking pretty well, actually, Matt. Uh, okay. So, penultimate in Isaiah. I'm really unhappy about that, actually. So, you never know. I might change the plan for the autumn for... We've been talking about an awful lot of different things about Isaiah and him speaking to the people of Judah uh, before and during the exile and that sense of prophetic fulfillment. And so we're going to be kind of wrapping up on that today and next Sunday as well. So my brother and sister-in-law have been staying for the weekend, are in fact here in church this morning. And um, you kind of know that you've get into a different stage in your life when the first main conversation that you have, having not seen each other for quite some while, is on the relative merits of Vax versus Dyson cordless vacuum cleaners. <laughs> kind of just says something, doesn't it, about the quality of our lives right now. And the main issue, just in case you were wondering, because obviously you are super interested in this, is the issue of clogging and reduced suction and how you should deal with said things and um, whether or not it is possible and whether one machine is better in this area than another is. Um, I think in a, we're in agreement that Dyson is superior to Vax in the strength of its suction, but that clogging is an issue in both machines, <laughs> should you be interested in knowing that. <laughs> this is why you come to church, isn't it? Maybe if, um, if garden hoses are more your thing. Let's try turning that on. <laughs> if garden hoses are more your thing, then the issue is not with suction, but with actually spraying out the water. But there's the same problem with kind of blocking. It's like, you know, what is it that's sometimes stopping the water from coming out the hose, and normally it's the way it's wound around the hosey thing, whatever, you can see I don't do any gardening whatsoever, and sometimes it's because you are standing on it, but actually removing blockages is a really important thing for the good functioning of either the vacuum or the hose. So there we are, that's it, do you want to finish up now? I feel like I've said everything that's important. You know, Isaiah chapter 59 uh, particularly is really a lot around removing blockages. The blockages that prevent them having that full experience of God and his presence and everything that he hoped for them as his people. In Isaiah 58, which we were looking at last Sunday, God has, in effect, held up a mirror to them. A mirror that says to them, all of your singing... And by the way, the singing is exceptional this morning. All of your praying, all of your fasting is worthless. Not because it's inherently worthless, because it isn't, but because of the way that you're treating each other, because of the way that you are dealing with your workforce, because of the way that you 
don't show any concern for the oppressed or those struggling with injustice, because of your quarreling and your fighting with each other, then your worship is worthless. And our worship should be worthy of the one who made us. So that's the reason that you're not experiencing the presence of God, his light, his well-being, the flourishing that should be yours because of the way that you're treating one another. And God holds up that mirror to them. And he also does the same, continuing into chapter 59. And in verse 2 until 8, we see God's view of them. It says, Your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt, your lips have spoken lies and your tongues mutter wicked things. No one calls for justice, no one pleads his case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments and speak lies. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. It's amazing pictures here. They hatch the eggs of vipers and spin a spider's web. Whoever eats their eggs will die. And when one is broken, an adder is hatched. You know, you just get the vision, don't you? That these are the sins that are coming between them and God. Lies and blasphemy, a lack of integrity, relying on themselves, injustice, violence, and even murder. And God holds up this mirror to them. And he has been doing all the way through Isaiah. He says, look, look, this is the reason that you're going to end up in exile. This is the reason things are not going well for you. It's because of this in your life. And actually, at long last, whoa, at long last, they start to see what God sees. At long last, they start to acknowledge it. And in from verse 9, that's like a kind of act of corporate repentance or at least acknowledgement of the things that are between them and God. So justice is far from us. Righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness, for brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Again, some brilliant pictures here. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like men without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. We all growl like bears. Anyone heard of bear growl in the zoo? No. We moan mournfully like doves. We had a discussion at the 9.15 as to whether doves moan. Evelyn suggested a plaintive sound. I think that was good. We look for justice but find none, for deliverance, but it's far away. And then they go on, for our offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. That's all God ever wanted to hear, you know. He only outlines them all because they will not hear, because they're so stubborn, because they won't look in the mirror and see what he sees. All he wants to hear from them is, we have got it wrong. We haven't pursued you and your way for our lives. We've gone the other way. We've been rebellious and stubborn and independent. We've lied. We haven't put God first. That's all he wants to hear. And at that very moment, he turns towards them. You know, we don't need to put a long list of every sin that we have ever committed before God. Frankly, it's a complete waste of time because he knows anyway. We might need to do that for our own sake. We might want to do it. But God knows and all he wants for us is to say, I haven't got it right before you. I haven't got it right. And they got to that place. 
they got to the place where they could see the consequence of their behavior meant that they weren't experiencing all the wonderful things that God had for them to experience as his people, making the difference that he wanted them to make. Bye, Samuel. And if we just flip over to chapter 60 for just a moment before we get on to the good bit. <laughs> because Isaiah uses this image. And it says in the version we read, See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But actually, in some other verse, versions, it says this, Darkness covers the earth like a shroud which is such a strong image, both kind of at a personal level, because we know that you only cover someone with a shroud when they are dead. So this image reminds us that this darkness that covers the earth like a shroud is around a darkness that brings death. There is no life, there is no light, there is no hope. There is only separation and alienation and barrenness and death and decay, this darkness covers the earth like a shroud. And from God's perspective, he is looking to the earth and he sees injustice and violence and alienation and the worship of idols and oppression and rebellion and pain and sorrow and suffering. And it feels like darkness covers the earth like a shroud. And yet, for the whole of Isaiah, for the whole of Isaiah, and actually for the whole of God's word on human history, God has said, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. Now, some of you might be in a tunnel where the light looks suspiciously like a train right now. But God's word to you is, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. The darkness will not always rule over the light. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. It may be an immediate light that something is completely transformed in an instant and everything is bright and the darkness is dispelled. Or it may be an eschatological light. Not exactly certain what one of those looks like, but it may be, it may be a further along the way, a very far along the way, at the end of time, the light is that Jesus comes again and there is no injustice and there is no oppression and there is no debt and there is no pain and there is no breakdown of relationships because there is a light and all will be well. The people don't seem to have grasped much about why they're in the situation they are, despite Isaiah speaking for 60 chapters about it. They don't understand why they're under attack from the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Persians. They don't understand why they're in exile. They don't understand why they're not experiencing their identity as God's people and all that he has promised. And so they wonder to themselves, well, maybe... God's arm is too short, kind of, you know, pictorially. Maybe God's arm is too short. Maybe he's got a little bit hard of hearing recently, and when we've been shouting at him, he hasn't heard. Maybe he's too weak. Maybe he's powerless. Maybe you've had that thought. Maybe God's arm is too short 
from my issue. Maybe God's not listening. He's hard of hearing to the things that I'm talking to him about. Maybe he's too weak. Maybe he's powerless. But verse 1 of chapter 59 says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. Of course he isn't weak and powerless. Of course he isn't deaf. And in verse 16 of chapter 59, it says this, He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm worked salvation for him and his own righteousness sustained him. God upholds his covenant and there is a time. Do you remember we talked a few weeks back now of the covenant that God made with Abraham where he got Abraham to do the whole sacrifice thing and then he walked up and down through the burning sacrifice and it was very strange but not so strange for Abraham. And God was saying to him, I've made this covenant with you it is not an equal party covenant where if I get it wrong, I sort it out. And if Mike gets it wrong, he sorts it out. Not that kind of a covenant. It is the kind of covenant where whoever gets it wrong, when you get it wrong, God will sort it out. He will always take responsibility. He knows what we are like. He knows we break things down. He knows we break the covenant, but he always promises that he will resolve it. He will sort it out. And in this passage, God says, now is the time. Now is the time I am coming to sort things out, to restore the covenant that has been broken. And we have this image, which we are a little bit unfamiliar with, and perhaps even a little bit uncomfortable with. And it's the image of the warrior God. The image of the warrior God. And we have this picture in verse 15 of God scanning the earth as if he was on the rim of heaven, peering out over the earth, looking. He says, is there anyone? Meekly, he has his messengers. Is there anyone? Anyone who can intervene? Anyone who can restore things? Anyone who can save? Is there anyone? And he looks and he sees that there is no one. There is no one. And because there is no one, God says, I will do it. I will step up. I will intervene. I will bring salvation and justice. And we have this wonderful image of the warrior God, of a situation that's beyond human help and that needs divine intervention. And his own arm works salvation and he's powered by righteousness. So everything he does is good and true. And he puts on the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation. Does that sound familiar? Paul picks that up again, doesn't he, later on in Ephesians about the armor of God. And he, put, he clothes himself with garments of vengeance and wraps himself in zeal like a cloak. And at the first service I got one of the blankets because it was freezing in here which is exceptional for the last few months. And I got the blanket because I imagine God with these garments of vengeance and picking up this huge cloak and wrapping himself, you know, a bit like Zorro, round him, this zeal. And it says in Isaiah chapter 9 that we read at Christmas, doesn't it? The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this, the passionate intent and covenant relationship of God 
will accomplish this. It's around a total transformation of their current situation. All the lands and the people will come and honor and fear and worship him. In the NIV version, it says this, the Redeemer, sorry, no, for he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. A pent-up flood, you know, when, it, when it's just being held back, the floodwaters have risen and risen, and actually, mostly, it's going to be devastation. And then they are let out, and they just rape. The Lord will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord blows along. But you know, there's an alternate version of that translation, which has a slightly different understanding, because Hebrew is not always that easy entirely to make sense of and can be understood slightly differently in places. And this alternate version, uh, some of us will be familiar with, because we sang it a lot in the 1980s. It says this, when the enemy comes in like a flood, and it doesn't say the battle belongs to the Lord, it says the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. You know, when the enemy comes in like a pent-up flood, then the Spirit of the Lord lifts up a standard, a banner. You know, the, the banners that the leaders of the armies held when they went into battle, the identity of the leader and the people. Those battle lines are drawn up, the power of darkness on the one hand and the power of God with the banner on the other. And there is only one victor. The Lord will fight. Chapter 60, Isaiah. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. And we've said before, haven't we, that there's multiple layers of application when we read the prophets and, you know, we need to kind of get that. It's a bit like if you were climbing mountains. You know, there's different peaks. You feel like you got there. Oh, no, there's another one. It's kind of like that. So for the people of Judah, they were going to return to their land. The temple was rebuilt and worship started again there. The walls were rebuilt under Nehemiah. Their identity was reestablished in an awesome way. And God did what he said that he was going to do. And King Cyrus of Persia, we read about him in chapter 45, he said, go home. Not only did he say go home, he said, have some money. Rebuild the temple. Worship. Oh, and just pray for me, will you, as well. God did what he said that he was going to do. But the truth was that the people in Judah were still not perfect Many of them were far from God. They were still injustice and unrighteousness. And so we look to another day. Another day when the Lord will come against the powers of darkness, where he will raise up his standards. And the symbol of that day is this. Our warrior God on the cross. In vulnerability and weakness as a man on a cross. Our warrior God defeating the powers of sin and hell and darkness on the cross. He raised up a standard, the power of his blood, the battle belongs to the Lord. And Paul says in Colossians chapter two, and you might like to have a look at that. 
because it's good. Verse 13, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. There is a day... You know, this week, I have had this, obviously, in my mind. And there have been numerous times in the course of this week where I have prayed for some of you in this room today that the warrior God would come for you, would come for your case, would stand up in your injustice. I prayed that for Michael and JJ today and yesterday. Some of you are in here today. I have no idea how to help you, and neither do many of us in this room, but it's not because we don't love you. It's because we have no idea how to help you. And our prayer is that the warrior God would come and fight on your behalf. He would look and see that there is no justice, and there is no righteousness, and that you are oppressed, and he would come and fight on your behalf. And I want you, if you will, to stand with me and pray that for some of our friends in this room today that God would come as a warrior and he would do what we cannot do on their behalf and that we would see transformation and victory because this is what God promises for his people. And it is my prayer, and it was my text to Michael and JJ this morning, that the warrior God, the warrior God, the one with the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation, clothed in zeal, would come and make a difference in their situations, in your situations today. Are you with me on that? But you know what? There is another day. Another day will come where our warrior God will come for the last time. Revelation chapter 19, we looked at this not so long ago really. says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. So this is our eschatological light. That's what one of those looks like. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Another day is dawning. There is an apocalyptic sense to this of lifting the veil between heaven and earth of what is to come, of showing us a reality that is ongoingly real, but we don't experience all of that yet. There is a sense of this being of the end times when we fully see things as God will make them be, when darkness is banished by light, where his glory, the powerful presence of the Lord will erase all of 
the shroud that covers the earth, where the nations will come and bow down and worship before him. The nations of Midian and Ephah, of Sheba and Kedar, of Tarshish and Lebanon, of each nation of the world. We saw that, didn't we, when the Magi came and they worshipped the baby. What did they follow? Light. And even in Rome, not four centuries after the crucifixion of our warrior God on a cross, Constantine the emperor said, we should all really worship Jesus now. There is a day full of radiance and joy when people will bring gifts and rebuild and the gates will be open and it will be a day of praise and of salvation. Sometimes we just need to be reminded that whatever injustice we experience or occurs in our community, in our nation, across our globe, there will be a day when it will be eradicated and when every person will be vindicated in the presence of God. And it may not be what we see this side, but there will be a day when some of you will stand heads high, heads high, knowing that you are vindicated by the glorious presence of God. There is a vision of a new Jerusalem. It has strong parallels with Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48, and of course with Revelation and the new Jerusalem that will come. This is something to look forward to. Really, I think it is. I'm looking forward to opening, opening BBC News and only having good news there. <laughs> I'm looking forward to speaking to each of you and speaking to myself and us not being broken and battered and ashamed and hurting because there's healing and there's cleansing and all tears are wiped away and there is no more death or pain or sorrow or sighing. This is a vision worth looking forward to. And this passage and really so much of Isaiah is really about fulfillment. It reminds us in chapter 55. It says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without water in the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. God's word will be achieved. God's purposes will be accomplished. God's vision will be fulfilled. And I, for one, am really up for that. Really up for it. And in the meantime, I am so excited by the glimpses of this that I see in your lives and in our church and in our community, glimpses of our warrior God coming and making a difference and transforming and intervening. And that is what we serve for. That is what we pray for. And that is why our worship is full of hope and life, because it is worship of our God who makes all things new.